I don't know if you've ever saw the footage on YouTube. I can't remember if it was Catherine Jenkins or Charlotte Church, but for some reason, somebody decided it would be a really good idea before an England-Germany football match to get one of those poor singers to go out into the middle of Wembley Stadium in front of a crowd of rather rambunctious, shall we say, football supporters. I mean, rugby supporters aren't like that. It's just football supporters. Out into the middle of the crowd to sing Amazing Grace. I don't know if you saw the footage, as one of the singers started singing, and, and bless them, they kept going. There was cheering, there were strange noises, but as they proceeded through the song Amazing Grace, the crowd grew stiller and stiller, until that very last verse, you could have heard a pin drop. Now, I'm not saying revival broke out in Wembley Stadium, but what I'm saying is, what is it about some of those songs, some of those hymns, some of those truths that still cut through to us today. In a busy, loud, distracting world, a world full of options and potential, a world full of questions and choices, what is it about something like the simple truth of amazing grace that cuts through? What is it about that old hymn, Abide With Me, that cuts through? What is it about music and things to get our attention, to get to the heart of the matter? Today's text in John chapter 11, both last week and this week, is one of those songs and one of those themes that just cuts right to the heart of things. Here, Jesus doesn't mess around. Here, Jesus, he never does, but he doesn't give false hope. He doesn't, he doesn't beat around the bush. He goes straight to the heart of a matter to prove that he is trustworthy, that he is reliable, that all who believe in him will not look foolish, will not be let down, will not be disappointed. Jesus is a sufficient Savior. Jesus is the one who can walk right up to the grave and deal with the most fundamental issue that will face each and every one of us, death itself. And he isn't scared, and he isn't cowed, and he isn't perplexed. Notice here this scene as we saw Jesus arrived. He set out from the desert place and come arriving towards Mary and Martha. Martha comes up to him with her questions. You've got to love Martha, don't you? Martha would be the clipboard queen of the Bible. You could see her there organized, always sorting things out. As she comes to Jesus and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And they have that remarkable conversation, which I, I read just bits off there, where Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And there's a bit of confusion there between Martha and Jesus. And Jesus says to her these words, words which he asks you and me, brothers and sisters, this message this morning isn't about preaching. It isn't about something we do in church to listen to the guy up front. This is me bringing you to Jesus saying, look at him, trust him. Will you do something with him this morning? Believers, will you do something with him? Friend, if you're here this morning, you've never heard of Jesus. Let me describe him here, but listen to see what he does. For he is the key person in this whole universe. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection. Resurrection meaning the one who has power over death to bring death back to life. And not only has he got that power, he has got life in himself. Life which never ends, never runs out, which is eternal. And he calls us to trust in him this morning to believe in him. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. They're big words, are they not? I mean, if you're not astounded by that this morning, have you got what Jesus is saying here? Even if you pop your clogs, yet shall you live. 
you grasp that? Even if you die. Jesus makes that claim. It's an outrageous claim. And whoever believes and lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so we come to verse 28 and we have the second encounter. We know that Mary and Martha, her sisters, Lazarus was their brother. They loved him. They loved Jesus. This was a very messy and emotional situation. There'd be a lot of Kleenex. There'd be a lot of tears. There'd be a lot of, dare I say it, snotter. All these things going on. And isn't it great that Jesus is in the midst of this situation? Friend, you may be here this morning in grief. You may feel ashamed of your grief. You may think tears have no place in the church. That's not the case with Jesus. Let's read on together. Mary said to Martha, Jesus, or Martha said to Mary, Jesus is calling for you. She goes out to him. Jesus had remained outside the village. We're not too sure why he did that. Some think it's because Martha told him to stay there because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And she runs to Jesus. I love that about Mary and Martha both. In their grief, in their complexity, in their sorrow, in their upset, they still run to the only person who can actually do something about it, Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning perplexed. Perhaps you're here this morning, you've moved to a new town, a new city, you've moved to Lincoln where they all speak funny apart from me. <laughs> you feel disorientated. You feel, you feel out of place. Run to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Fred, you may feel far from home. You may be worried about loved ones. I guarantee you come to Jesus. Do what Mary does here. It's beautiful. She runs to him. There's no backwards about it. There's no ifs or buts. She goes straight to Jesus. In fact, she gets up so fast. Have you ever been in a room with somebody and you're sitting talking, the next thing they spring up and take off? It's startling, isn't it? I mean, she's giving Martha a run for her money here. It's usually Martha's darting around, but Mary's straight out the door. And the people who are consoling with her, and I love this. Let me just give you a wee, a wee aside here, a wee excursus. J.C. Ryle commenting on this passage, he says a beautiful thing. He says, see how God blesses the people who were trying to sympathize with Mary. They'd come around as good friends. They'd gathered together. They'd weep with those who weep. They'd went to the house of mourning to support their friend. And in their act of supporting her, God shows them a miracle which will astound them. Friends, never despise the day of small things in the service of the Lord. If you do something, I think Malinu pray, if you do something, an act of kindness in Jesus' name, it's amazing how God can open that to bless and show you more of him. Never despise the day of small things. And so Mary runs to see where Jesus is, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep. She comes to Jesus. Look at verse 32 here. This is a very emotional part here. She comes to Jesus. She sees him and she falls at his feet. She crumples before him. What is it about the eye sometimes that when we see something, it moves the heart, does it not? Here she sees the object of her love. And one of the things I love about Mary, we'll see it again in a few weeks' time, is how every time we see her in the Bible, she is at the feet of Jesus. What a beautiful picture of a disciple. What a beautiful picture of a faithful follower of Jesus. In her doubt, in her grief, in her collapsing, she falls at the feet of Jesus. How will he respond? How does Jesus respond to tears? How does Jesus respond to grief? How does Jesus respond to this? Well, let's look at verse 33. When he saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her weeping, genuine grief, he was deeply moved in his spirit. I love going to old church buildings. I love, I mean, a building is a building. But I love going to old church buildings. And one of the things I love is, do you know the stained glass windows? They're quite beautiful, can't they? 
I mean, it's great over here in England. Your guys' ones aren't boarded up with all the security mesh we have in Northern Ireland, but it's lovely seeing stained glass windows. But I wonder sometimes if we take that into our theology. In stained glass windows, people are motionless. They're still, they're, they're plaster saints. They don't move, they don't respond. Do we think that of Jesus? What do you think of Jesus this morning? Do you think he isn't touched by our infirmities? Do you think that he's not touched by our grief? Do you think that he's got such a big universe to run and all the problems to run? I mean, Rishi Sunak's got nothing compared to what the Lord has to deal with. But he doesn't care about us. That's contrary to the whole of Scripture. Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Each one of us knitted together in our mother's womb by the hand of God. A sparrow falls from the sky and our Lord knows it. The hairs on our head, and some of us have more than others, are numbered. I mean, I don't know how romantic you are, but I bet you don't sit and count your partner's hairs at night, do you, to say how much you love them? Don't do that, it would be strange. Jesus cares for us. I've quoted it before last week, and I'll quote it again. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. How will Jesus respond to this weeping lady crumpled at his feet? He is deeply moved in spirit. There, as I said at the start, the translation is hard to translate this word. Some say indignant. Some say almost that Leon Morris in his commentary says it is like a horse snorting. Jesus feels this very powerfully. His human nature is completely engaged in this situation. His spirit is troubled. Some will almost say angry. What's he angry about? Angry at death? Yes, death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death was not God's creation. Death entered in because of sin and our rebellion. Angry at death, troubled, moved. We have a great high priest whose name is love, who is touched by our infirmities, who is touched by our weakness, who carries us, who, as Peter says, when we are burdened, we come to him and cast our burdens on him because he cares for us. Jesus cared for Mary. Jesus wasn't afraid of her tears. He wasn't afraid of her breaking heart. He wasn't afraid of the hopelessness that perhaps entered into her he came to her. Isn't that beautiful? That is our Savior, and He doesn't mess around. And so Mary weeps. Jesus asks the question, where have you laid Him? So they say to Him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, the shortest verse in the whole Bible. And the word therefore wept is not like what we do in the UK where we have a wee tear trickling down our face and we dabble with a bit of Kleenex and say, sorry about that old chap. I lost control of myself there. No. Jesus weeps here his heart-rending sobs. Have you ever been to a funeral in the Middle East or in India? When people come to a graveside, they don't try and contain the emotion. They don't try and hold it in. They let it all out. Jesus weeps here deeply. A Savior who sympathizes with us, who has been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin who bears our infirmities. Did Isaiah not prophesy this in Isaiah 53, who carries our sorrows and our griefs? Oh, friend, this morning, if you're in Mary's situation, if you're in Martha's situation, come to Jesus. Run to Him. Bring it to Him. If your heart is breaking, perhaps not through grief, but through anxiety about the future, through worries, through a load of sin that you can't get rid of, 
come to Jesus, the Savior who weeps with us. It was said in the First World War that the soldiers returning from the home front who were scarred and wounded and injured found it hard to be reconciled to a God who seemed so powerful and strong after the war. And one theologian had the wise idea of pointing to the Jesus of the scars, wounded like them, hurt like them, a Savior who is perfect in love and in beauty and in majesty, but a Savior who has felt the sharpness of human life in its fully. He was truly human and truly divine. Perhaps your heartache this morning isn't grief. Perhaps it's family. My old pastor in Whitewell used to say that when kids are young, they walk across your feet. And they do that, don't they? Stand on you, they climb up you, they sneeze on you, they do all sorts of things over you. When they're young, they walk across your feet. When they grow older, they walk across your heart. Perhaps you feel this with family this morning. Jesus had family. Perhaps you're the only Christian in your family. Jesus, strangely enough, was the only Christian in his family for a while when his brothers wouldn't believe in him. Perhaps you're worried about where you're going to lay your head tonight. Jesus has been there. He had nowhere to lay his head. The foxes had dens, the birds had nests. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. John reminds us that we can trust in him in all the shades of life. And even in the greatest crisis, death itself. So let's see how this wonderful, kind, loving Savior deals with the situation. Where have they laid him? Jesus weeps. The Jews then point out sneeringly, well, see how he loved him. What good is his love? If he loved him, he would have healed him. If he loved him, he would have restored him. If he loved him, how many times have we heard that? Where is God in this? Where is God in my heartache? Where is God in my family pain? He is there. See how he loved him, they sneer. Jesus, verse 38, is deeply moved again, this time with the grief, but also with anger. Anger at the unbelief. Anger at the way the death has creeped into the situation. Anger at the pain it has caused because it's not his creative will, but also anger too at the unbelief. This has happened before in the Bible. Remember, Jesus was surrounded by the religious leaders of Mark's gospel and he heals a man on the Sabbath. The guy's not moved his arm for years. Jesus says, stretch out your arm. The guy stretches out his arm and is healed. I mean, that's an amazing miracle, isn't it? You'd say yes. He's with me still. He's okay. Yeah, that's good. And the Pharisees refused to believe it. And he was grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus does want us to trust in him. And he doesn't ask us for a blind faith. He doesn't ask us for a faith that isn't certifiable. He gives us proofs of his trustworthiness. The whole way through John's gospel up to this point, we have seen proofs of his trustworthiness. He has healed the blind man, as they noticed there. He has turned water into wine. He has done amazing miracles. He's walked in water, still storms. He has done things that only God could do. And now he will do one last miracle, the final sign in John's gospel, a sign that is astounding. Jesus moved again, comes to the cave, a stone lay against it. This isn't like our graveyards where you're put in the ground. In those days, you were put in a cave and a big stone was put in front of it and that was it. Jesus says these things, take away the stone. Now, if you were in the audience that day, you would all gasp. You know that polite gasp that people do when they're shocked? Martha, bless her. Who's the first person to speak in this story about Martha? Lord, by this time there'll be an odor for he has been dead for four days. I mean, there is almost an element of humor in this. It is a tragic situation, but she's absolutely right. 
As I said last week, Dr. McCoy from Star Trek doesn't need to come and say this Lazarus is dead. We all know it. He's been dead four days. Beyond resuscitation, beyond hope, beyond medical intervention, and the smell is coming out. And Jesus says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Glory is an interesting word in this passage. Glory here means beauty, the light, the work of God, the perfection of God. Do you want to see that? And so they took away the stone. Now imagine this scene. This is, this is real. They're standing at a graveside outside a cave in Jerusalem. The stone has been taken away where somebody you know is lying there decomposing. The audience is all around. And this man, this, this rabbi from the provinces, from the rural areas is standing there. And as you're standing there, the smell starts to come out. The smell of death and decay. And it starts wafting around the crowd. And then Jesus prays. Father, I thank you that you heard me. What's he been praying for? He's been praying for Lazarus. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this in the count of the people standing around me, that they may believe you sent me. There's echoes of Isaiah or Elijah. Remember Elijah when he's up the mountain of Horeb and one kings, and he prays, Lord, demonstrate that I am truly sent for you. Send the fire down. There's echoes of that. And as death starts to filter around the crowd, as doubts start to increase, as despair starts to increase, as shock starts to increase, he says these things and cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus! The original is actually, Lazarus, here, come. Pretty blunt, isn't it? And what happens? A man who's been dead for four days a man who's beyond the hope of any human intervention, a man who everyone had given up on, walks out of the tomb alive. The voice of the Lord brings life. Jesus brought resurrection into that body, alive forevermore. He comes out. Poor Lazarus, I mean, just for a minute, imagine what it must have been like for Lazarus. He comes out, waking up in his grave, surrounded by grave clothes. I mean, the text here is pretty clear. He's bound within the strips. He stumbles out. And the people are so shocked that Jesus has to say to them, guys, go and let him loose. I mean, you have to feel for the crowd a wee bit here, don't you? Go and let him loose. Unbind his cloths. He's alive. He's alive. And in that moment, they see the beauty of God because that is our God. That is our Savior, the one who is worthy of our trust. Death itself, the final enemy. That horrible, cold, cloying stillness. That finality that has struck so many of us and I've stood beside so many graves and saw that final enemy surrenders in the face of Jesus Christ. O oh, grave, where is thy victory? Death, where thy sting? And here Jesus in his final sign proves that he truly is the Son of God who is sent to rescue and redeem. Nobody has the power over the grave apart from God himself. And we know this is verifiable. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he said that Jesus went around raising people from the dead. So what will you do with this this morning? What will you do with a person like Jesus? who claims to be the resurrection and the life, who raises people from the dead. It's shocking, it's scary almost to come face to face with this, is it not? He is real. He doesn't mess around. 
He has come to save and redeem, to give life to whosoever. Look back again at verse 26 there. Whoever believes in him, who trusts in him by faith, will never finally taste death. They will never more. That is the beauty of God to bring life in hopeless situations. Where death is reigned, he comes and shatters its chains. Where despair is lingering like that smell from the grave, he dispels it with the fresh winds of his love. Where your candle that is growing smaller and smaller in the coldness of the opposition to your faith around you almost seems like it's going out, he brings fresh life and hope to it. This is our Savior, and this is the beauty of who he is and what he does. Isn't that amazing? Here is love, fast as the ocean, loving kindness like the flood, when the prince of life, my ransom, shed his precious blood for me. We cannot read about Lazarus without reflecting on Jesus' own grave experience. As we read this, we are in the shadow of Jerusalem. The cross hangs above him. In a few weeks' time, he will be put to death there by the Roman governors. They thought that death would finalize him. They really should have read John's gospel. And they put him to the tree, they kneel him there, and he dies there. And as he dies, he cries out, it is finished. Tetelestes paid in full. The debt of sin, the debt of God's judgment, all that we brought into this equation was death and destruction. He took it upon himself, swallowed it whole, wrestled the grave, and walked out three days later alive forevermore. So not only do we have a Savior who can raise people from the dead, we have a Savior who's went into death itself, destroyed it, and come back and says to you and me, will you trust me? Do you believe in me? Will you hold on to me? Will you let me be the good shepherd who will lead you through all the stages of life? Even through that final dark shadow, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is the beauty of our Savior. Even death itself will not separate us from His love. And this too is a message for us throughout the whole of life. Last week, somebody asked me, who was the young dude you were talking about? If you can't remember last week, I do apologize. But last week I started the sermon by mentioning a young guy who had been kidnapped from his home, taken to a foreign country, put into slavery, who had met God in that country, who had escaped back to his home country, and then was called back to the land where slavery and death reigned. It was Patrick of Ireland, famously known as St. Patrick. And one of the things that kept him going through his ministry, Patrick had a hard ministry. The Irish are difficult folk, and I do say that. Patrick went to a country where there was hardly any Christianity. There was a wee church that sort of met at the pale edge beside the sea, and that was it. And before him was an island that spoke foreign tongues, foreign languages, and it was just him and his wee merry band. What kept him going? It was this power described here, the power of the resurrection, the God who brings hope in hopeless situations, who raises the dead, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, is the power that is work in the church. Not only does he call us to trust him in the final stage of death, he calls us to trust him every day of our lives and everything we do in his power through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? So this morning, as you face situations, why does this passage relate to you? Well, perhaps you are facing this final hurdle. He will take you through it to himself. 
Perhaps you're facing difficulty in family. The situation is overwhelming. The darkness seems great. Trust the God who works the power of resurrection in your life to do more than you could think, hope, or imagine. The new day is dawning. And though where we live, the night can be very dark and the tears very bitter, there is light and joy waiting not far away. And Jesus here in this moment brings that life and joy into the situation as Lazarus walks out of the tomb alive. I mean, imagine the heartache of this whole scene. How many of you like waiting? How many patient people are there in this room? I know some of you are waiting for the sermon then. No, <laughs> we don't like waiting. I often wonder what the waiting must have been like for Mary and Martha. We see here the heartache of it. Lazarus dies. Jesus doesn't turn up. Jesus turns up. He seems late. But imagine the joy they must have felt when they saw their brother walk out of that tomb. Imagine the heartache of the disciples on Good Friday. The man they'd loved and followed for three years, been by his side, is dead. What would Easter Saturday must have been like that day of stillness? But imagine the joy, in fact, we do see the joy in the Bible and the shock when he walked into that tomb alive forevermore. Brothers and sisters, I don't know where you're at on your journey. Perhaps you're at the stage of disappointment. Keep trusting the Lord. Renewal comes. Perhaps you're on Easter Saturday. You've been through the disappointment. You're in the stage of shock. You're wondering what's happened. Keep trusting. For Sunday comes. Jesus will not disappoint. He will not let go. He will not leave you. If you trust in him, he is yours and you are his forever. And sometimes when we walk through the dark, we have to do it by putting our hand in his and clinging to him. Brothers and sisters, trust him. Trust the power of his resurrection and keep holding fast to him. And if you're here this morning and you've never met Jesus, this is true. He can raise the dead. He came back from the grave itself and he has defeated sin and opened the way for all of us to come back to God if we trust in him. If we stop trying to save ourselves and rescue ourselves, but trust wholly in him, he will save and redeem us. So again, as Jesus asked Martha, do you believe him? Let us pray. Lord, I pray that it was not of me, it wasn't helpful, would fall to the wayside. How could we communicate such truth if we do not have the help of your Holy Spirit? So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take your word and for those of us who trust you and follow you to plant it in our hearts, that you would give fresh hope fresh amazement at the grace we have sung about, that you would give peace and oil in our lamps, that you, the holy, holy, holy one, has forgiven us. God himself has set us free through the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And whoever believes in him 
will be saved and not perish, but have everlasting life. Give us assurance and joy in our salvation this morning, for it is you who has redeemed us and set us free. If we're facing grief, Lord, I pray gently into that situation that you would be beside them, that the tears that fall are not an embarrassment to you, and you would bring healing to weary, wrung-out hearts, for that is what you do. If there are those in our midst, as we prayed earlier, who feel that hope is gone, that darkness and despair reigns in the situation, that your resurrection power works there too. And they would see the glory of the Lord at work in their lives. And if we're in a situation and the answer to prayer has not come yet, give us the patience to wait in you. We thank you that we serve one who has proven himself time and time again. So when you call us to wait, it's not because you're being unkind. It's not because you're being cruel. It's because you're working out your will and purpose in its perfect way at the right time. So help us to trust. And lastly, Lord, if we do not know you, may you indeed reveal yourself now by the power of your Holy Spirit, giving the gift of that new birth we read about in John 3, that the life and joy of Christ would enter into heart, causing faith and love for the Savior to grow. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.